everybody, and welcome to the 38th and final episode of the Quarantino. Mm-hmm. 38th episode of WT Fada. I am John, as always, joined by... I'm going to do an anticlimactic intro this time. I am joined by this guy right here, and his name is... Ron! Ah, that wasn't as anticlimactic as I, oh. I was going for, but I like it. I, 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 I decided to, to, to throw a monkey wrench in because I know you tried to do really excited one time <laughs> and over the top and I went bland. So this time I, I paired, I, I did the opposite. Keep me on my toes, man. I'm trying to ruin it. <laughs> trying to ruin everything. Oh, fuck. How are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. Um, I'm hitting a weird, a weird strike. Right here in this quarantine, but I'm good. Go on. It's 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 just it's getting old. Yeah, it sucks. Yeah, it's getting old. I'm running out of ways to entertain myself. Yeah, it's really um, tough right now. I have come to the conclusion that I need more ways to be creative. You know, like a creative hobby. Mm-hmm. So I something I've done before is i've tried to learn you know piano or something so i just bought a keyboard come in and maybe occupy myself with that and i have a lot of time so maybe i can get the basics down and you know have something as a creative hobby something to soothe the soul yeah productive i highly recommend it that's a good idea it should be coming today so i'm pretty excited for it nice but other than that, uh, I've been kind of to the same old stuff. I um, I just started listening to Zach Braff and Donald Faison's new podcast. Oh shit, they have one. Um, yes, it's called Fake Doctors, Real Friends. So what they're doing is they're going back and they're rewatching Scrubs and kind of doing commentary on episodes and how things came to fruition, and then having on special guests from the show so it's been fun so far i love those guys they crack me up that sounds fun it is it's a lot of fun i'd recommend it if you're interested at all yeah it's it's funny listening to the way they got casted for scrubs because you had you had zach braff who wasn't really anyone by the time you know scrub started so then you have donald Faison who was in clueless and and he was talking about how he had all this money from clueless you know he he bought a house did all this this cool stuff and by the time he was auditioning for scrubs he was he was just flat out broke he was like yeah i'd have to like call my mom and beg her for gas money to get to these auditions this and that blah 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 and they were just talking about the hardships and you know the the journey it took to to get to that point. And it was really cool to hear. I really like hearing these things, how people start out. Mm. Uh, Zach Braff actually sent in an audition tape and I guess he, like he tanked it hard and his agent was like, you know what? Just go, go do a live audition in front of them. Like they're not even going to remember you. I don't even think your tape made it back past like their first phase or whatever. No one's even going to know. So he, that's what he ended up doing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, obviously ended up working out, but wow. it was just really interesting to hear all those things. Yeah. No, it's I always like, attitude it, it's always fascinating. Like just to hear the way that things, um, the, the way that things build up over time um, and the way that, like, you know, 
I think that if you're dedicated to something, you know, if you're sure that you're on the path of what you want to do, um, mm-hmm. I think that it makes it <clears throat> like I'm in a, I'm at a point right where I feel like you know I am producing some of the best work that I've ever done in my life right now. I feel really good about that. Um, and I feel like there's hope right now that I haven't really felt before. I feel like I'm on the right track with what I'm trying to do. Um, but I, I think that it's important to look back on all of the, like the totality of everything that I've done up until this point and realize how many times I like, I was just about ready to give up. Like I was just about ready to be like, fuck it. I don't, I'm not, I'm not doing it anymore, but you always get pulled back, you know, because it's what you're supposed to do. It's like an innate thing, you know? Um, and when I hear, you know, I've heard so many stories about different actors, um, and different creative people that, you know, have great careers, but the, the path to getting there was extremely bumpy and I always take a lot of solace in those stories, you know. Um, uh-huh. There's a poster artist named Drew Struzend, who if you if you don't know the name, you definitely know the work. He did, like, all those great illustrated posters for, like, the old Star Wars movies and Indiana Jones. Um, he's a phenomenal artist, but... He talks about the early days of trying to get his career off the ground. And it was like I had to choose between whether I was going to eat this week or I was going to buy more paint. And I chose to buy more paint. Um, And I think that when you get down into that territory where you're, um, you know, you're you're desperate, but you're also making a choice that is in a way it's selfless you know you're making a choice where it's like what i do is more important than who i am and i think when you put your work first you know especially with creative endeavors when you put your work first that's oftentimes what the key to success is um i think that getting to that place uh where you will do that is unpleasant uh, <laughs> but yeah I think that it does pay off. Right, right. I mean, you hear it all the time. Well, I mean, that that story you told me about the guy, what was his name? <sighs> the story that you heard about the dude who did Shrek. I ended up doing Shrek. Oh, so I, so this this is a great story, and it never... It's a wonderful story. It, it's never popped up on WT Fada, and I get to pass it on to people, which is just a glorious thing. I heard about this in college. Uh, my teacher was a man named Fred Lynch, and Fred Lynch was a, he was a professor at my school, I just went to Montserrat, but he also taught at RISD, which is one of the most, you know, it's one of the most prestigious art schools in the country, in in the U.S., um, and so it was like we had him teaching us, but like for half the price, which was just, you know, glorious, such a great, great experience working with him, Um but Fred had this story um, that he told where when he had gotten out of college, because he had gone to RISD and then later he becomes a professor there. Um, but he got out of college and he was living in a house with like three other guys. Right. And Fred had the top floor of the 
of the house. And basically what he would do is he would get up in the morning and he would sit down and he'd start painting. And he would paint and paint and paint. And then like around lunchtime, he'd be like, oh, I should go get food. He'd go downstairs, he'd get food. And then he would leave the house, walk to the end of the driveway to the mailbox and open the mailbox, take out a bunch of checks that he had gotten for different illustration jobs, uh, walk back inside, you know, sign them. Maybe he'd drive down to the bank, run a few errands, go back, paint a little while more, and then have his nights off. And he would just repeat that process over and over and over again. And one of the guys he worked with was a guy named John Rocco. And John yes. Rocco, yes, John Rocco uh, was a, a house painter. So he, um, but he was kind of, so he's doing a lot of like very physical work and very demanding work. And one of the things that, uh, that happened was John was sort of watching Fred's lifestyle and seeing Fred as like, wow, he has a lot of time off and he gets like a lot of money and he doesn't really have to do like, he doesn't have to leave the house and he doesn't have to carry ladders and he doesn't have to do this and all this shit. And, um, he finally went up to Fred and he was like, you know what? I, I'm going to... I'm going to be an artist too. And, uh, you know, Fred Lynch was like, are you, uh, are you sure that you want to do that, that you're going to pursue that? And he's like, how different could it be? He's like, I am a painter of houses and you paint houses. So like, that's the same thing. And Fred was like, that's totally not the same thing, but okay. Um, so he asked Fred about like, what, what, uh, classes should I go to? Um, and all this stuff, and Fred gave him a couple of tips, and John Rocco went out, and he, he, uh, he starts going to these classes, and he's coming back with work, he's going, Fred, look at what I did, look at what I did, and Fred's going, oh, Jesus Christ, that's awful, you know, <laughs> over and over and over again, um, and then eventually John's like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm gonna leave, I'm gonna pack up, and I'm gonna go to New York, and when I go to New York, um, I'm going to try to get like an art job there, an illustrator job there, because that's where it's happening. They were living, they were still in Rhode Island at this point. And he was like, so that's where it's happening. So, so uh, that's what I'm going to do. And Fred was like, well, I mean, you do what you think is best. He didn't really have a lot of faith in him. Um, but John Rocco goes to New York, keeps his portfolio on him everywhere he goes. Um, and his portfolio is like eight and a half by 11 computer paper printed versions of artwork that he's done none of it's particularly good but everywhere he goes he goes hey i'm an illustrator look at what i did and he shows everybody everything um and he winds up having a job at a bar and across the street from the bar um they're having an award show one night and he's very excited but he can't get off work so he's kind of stuck there but Whoopi goldberg winds up coming into his bar and he's like, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit. So he takes out his portfolio and he runs over to her and he's like, hi, Whoopi Goldberg. I am a big fan of your work, which may or may not have been true. Um, and he was like, I am an artist. Look at what I did. And he like hands it to her and she starts flipping through it and she's like immediately taken by it. And she's like, you know what I'm trying to do? I'm trying to do a like a urban retelling of Alice in Wonderland and I think that you would be a great fit for what I have in my head um so she winds up basically hiring him off of this like one-time meeting and 
they make the book. And he won like a Caldecott Award, which is like excellency in children's bookmaking, uh, which is just it's like completely insane. Like his first up to bat, you know, you're talking Grand Slam territory. And then so from there, he like parlays that into like a couple of other books, all this stuff. And then at a certain point, he, he like he actually has like real success with these books. And at a certain point, he kind of feels like he wants to stretch his legs, do something different. He just on a whim decides he's going to he wants to go to Hollywood and he's going to try to set up a meeting um, with somebody to see if he could get some type of development deal going. So he goes to Hollywood. He gets a meeting with a studio. And this is in the late 1990s. He sits down with them and um, they're talking with him and they're like, well, you know, we want to do like an animated feature. Um, and, you know, we're we're sort of trying to feel out what that would be like. We need somebody to be on as an art director. And he was like, well, I can I can, you know, I definitely can do that. I know character design. And um, they were like, OK, but also the one other part is that we want it we want to uh do like a cg animation like computer generated 3d modeling and he was like okay and they were like are you familiar with any of those programs and stuff and he was like yeah yeah i use them all the time like that's that's something that uh i don't really incorporate it in my work but that's what i do as a hobby you know so i i know that stuff pretty well and they were like oh my god that is fantastic and they were like when can you start He's like, well, I have some things that I got to finish up beforehand, so I'm going to need probably like two weeks, um, two and a half weeks, and then I'd be good to go. And they were like, okay, well, you're hired. And he was like, all right, thank you. He shook everybody's hands. He walked out of there, and then he ran to the nearest store to buy the software that he said that he was like really good and knowledgeable in, and he had the two and a half weeks to teach himself the stuff so that when he showed up for work, he wouldn't look like a fraud. So in two and a half weeks, he fucking just learned that shit, Um, learned everything he possibly could about it. And then he went in and the studio never even noticed anything, never even realized it was like that they had been conned. It just seemed like he was the right guy for the job. Um, And basically uh, the first project that he worked on for that studio, which was DreamWorks, uh, was a film that you might have heard of called Trek. Uh, and his character designs are in that movie. Um, so when in doubt, as an artist or any type of professional, if, you, if you're if you nervous about what could happen and you don't know what to do, the, the really easy thing to remember is just Johnny Rocco it. Every time. If you just believe in yourself unwaveringly and you just stay the course... Uh, you can trick people into making you successful. So <laughs> he actually, to be fair, if you look up his his work, uh, he is great now. Uh, where he started, maybe not so much, but he is a really good illustrator. It's a good story, man. I like that story a lot. Dude, to have all that confidence and then to have the will to become such a good artist and on top of all of that to be as cute as Mark Ruffalo. I mean, <laughs> that's unfair. It's not right. Look him up, though. Seriously, he looks like Mark Ruffalo. It's weird. He does. I'm Googling him right now, actually. If they were going to make a movie 
which they fucking should, of Johnny Rocco's life. Because, I mean, I gave you a condensed version. I gave you some of the big highlights, but there's more shit. Like, this guy, this guy's career is fucking bananas. He's done so many things. He dated, like, a rock star, too. I don't know. It's just a, a bizarre story of a house painter from Rhode Island that was just like, you know what? I'm fucking done with this shit. <laughs> just a little bit of John Rocco in us all. I, I mean, I, I would hope. You know, I think that it's like a prerequisite for greatness. Um, no. I just remember that I'm done with this shit part. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I have the other things. <laughs> well, I think like, uh, I, I think, um, you know, the other side of that whole story that I, I failed to mention is that Fred Lynch is an accomplished illustrator. He's very good at what he does, but certainly hasn't been paid millions and millions of dollars for what he does. Um uh, so I guess, uh, he has a somewhat contentious relationship with Johnny Rocco because he hears about more success and he's like the fucking house painter, you know, like he's, he's sort of like, how, how did this happen? Um, it's pretty funny, but yeah, this goes to show you the difference, like confidence can give you, you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. a real deal. You know what I have a question about? What's up? It's a very big change of, of topic i apologize but we're doing the zoom meeting right mm-hmm. and i'm looking i have it set up so i can kind of see both of us so i can make sure i don't have any boogers um but mine my frame has ron beak three in the bottom as the mm-hmm. name but your frame has btoc one what is this that is do you remember the virtual flip cup tournament I was telling you about. Yes. We have a certain order that we go in. So I, we, the judges need to see what order. Okay. Um, so they can check it. Our, our team name is BTOC. Oh. Uh, I don't know. I, but, but the buddy I play with is from Las Vegas. He's been doing this for, for a long time. And apparently there's this team that resides in Connecticut that always wins and whoops his ass. So mm. he calls his team. BTOC, which stands for Best Team Outside of Connecticut. So that's okay. what that is. Yeah, alright, cool. That, that that clears that up. I was like, am I talking to like a robot version of John? <laughs> yeah. Like, is this actually... Yeah. No, I just leave it up there, because the only things I use Zoom for is this and then FlipCup, so... Yeah. I thought, I thought you were like a droid. I could be. BTOC1. The best damn droid I'm a droid when it comes three... to FlipCup. Yes. Best damn droid since R2-D2. Yeah. Fuck R2-D2. I always like mine. My initials break down to R-E-B-3. I'm like, that sounds mm-hmm. fucking official as shit. That is pretty <laughs> fucking official. I like I can, it a lot. I can hear myself beeping and whirring already. Uh-huh. Uh, so what else have you been up to, man? It's been rainy and cold here. It's I haven't really been going out, but... Yeah, it's like that in Wilmington, too. We're so far yeah. away from each other. Yeah, so far, yeah. <laughs> What's it like um, over there, John? Is it is it nice today or still shitty? <laughs> Looks like the sun's trying to peek out, but no, yeah, it's still shitty. Same here. <laughs> um, yeah, it has been kind of nasty. Now it's like even it compounded the self-isolation quarantine thing. 
Because it's just like, now I can't go outside even and relax. Yeah, I think that has something to do with how like, crappy of a mood I've been in lately. Yeah. But, you know, our, our stay at home ends May 4th, and I haven't heard anything about an extension. So, I just, with the current state of things, man, I honestly don't see it opening back up May 4th. I, I don't or, think that we should. I mean, I, I think, don't think it should either. I think people are Some going Some places to. are. I think people are going to, but I think that it was getting crowded in Massachusetts anyways. So, I mean, it's fine. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> um, I, I, I looked at the numbers today and I was like completely blown away. We jumped from like 450 dead to 700 dead in Middlesex County. It's just like, whoa, holy fuck. Like, that's a lot of people. I looked at that yesterday, too. Um, I haven't been following the numbers, but the, the it showed up in my feed. So I'm like, I'll just take a look at what the numbers look like. And I was shocked to see our county have the most. Yeah, big time. Like 12,000 cases. But to be fair, if you look up Middlesex County and you look at, like, the expanse of it, it like, you might as well just call it Massachusetts. Like, it includes <laughs> Boston, fucking Waltham, uh, Lowell. Goes all the way out to, like, fucking Pepperell. That's a lot. Yeah, when, when they broke it down, like, deaths per, you know, I don't know. We, we weren't the highest. No. We just, it's, you know. But it's so scary. It is scary. And it doesn't seem like it's going away. And I think Trump is full of shit. I drank, like, a gallon of bleach, and I just feel like shit. It hasn't, I, I, I don't feel like I'm protected by it. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I'm kind of calling fake news on the president, which is a crazy thing to do. Well, dude, you got to get the, um, was it all, all natural, organic grass fed bleach or was it <laughs> just that like over the counter shit? You got to get the good stuff. <laughs> I like the idea of grass fed bleach. I just like <laughs> globs of bleach roaming the hillside in their natural habitat. <laughs> <laughs> that is pretty good no I didn't get the grass fed it's fucking expensive when you go like the organic route it's just it's not uh, it's not economically feasible in these trying times so I kind of went with the more um, processed less uh, less healthy to ingest bleach which you know so it might be my fault I'll th I take it back uh, Trump is our god king and I should not, uh, I should not, uh, dispute him. <laughs> he hasn't led us astray so far. Did you hear what the Navy did? This was a cool thing. Did you hear about the this? UFO shit? Yes. I haven't read into it, but I, cause I, I still, I, I don't know what to believe anymore, man. Even if it's like, oh, like, no, this like legit happened. I'm like, all right, well, we'll see. Well, it's just a weird time. Like for me, I'm like. I was always like, they're never going to tell us whether aliens are real until it's the end of the world. And then all of a sudden, they're like, they're real. And I'm like, wait a minute. Oh, oh, shit, no. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's the end of days. Um, but no. They just got to start releasing all their secrets now. Yeah, like, they're just telling us everything. It's like, it's like y'all are going to die anyway, so. Marilyn Monroe assassinated JFK. Um, 
Martin Luther King Jr. wasn't assassinated at all, but he's actually alive and well and living on a moon of Jupiter. Um, mm -hmm. How many other things? What else? Elvis Presley was one of the aliens, for sure. And he brought oh, 100%. sexiness to Earth so that we could grow a bigger population. Um, it's all on the table now. Everything is everything is going to be revealed. You know what's weird, though, is one of the things that they're, they're going to reveal is that Epstein did kill himself, which is just like, wow, that is bizarre. So everything around that whole thing just seems like it's a blatant setup, but actually, in reality, Epstein did just commit suicide. But then they have things that they're going to release that nobody even has an inkling about. Like, like nobody even knows, like, it, there's not even, like, a rumor that these things exist. Like, did you know that Morgan Freeman is a robot? No. Nobody's talking about it. Nobody. That's but a that's, new one. That's true. That's something that's going to be released. The only reason that I know what's going to be re released is because I have, like, time travel, which is another thing they're going to talk about, but I already know about it because I already came back from the future to now. Ah. By the way, this whole COVID-19 thing, um, it does go away, but not in our lifetimes. <laughs> it kills us all first. <laughs> There's a couple lone survivors that restart the planet population. I help. Um, so... Trying to think if there's anything else, man. What, what, I, I, I feel like I've just been kind of going through the motions. Um, oh, I, I started watching something called The Midnight Gospel, and I highly recommend uh, people check that out. Um, I just started watching that as well. Yes, it's really uh, kind of cute, and it's lighthearted, and it's goofy as fuck. Mm-hmm. I love Duncan Trussell. I do Trussell, too. Trussell? I don't know how you pronounce his fucking last name. No, you got it. Trussell, yeah. 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 He's um he's a unique fellow. Uh very like as close to like a modern day hippie as I think you're gonna get. Huh. You know? The twenty first century hippie. Um but the show is cool. It seems like it collects uh audio from I think it's from the Duncan Trussell family hour. But it collects audio from his podcast, and then they animate a show over it, um, and then they do some uh, scripted lines, too. So it's like, while the characters are performing whatever actions they're supposed to for the plot, they also are just going on tangents and having wild and crazy conversations about all sorts of things. Um, and for me, it's just fun and sweet. It's a good show. It's good. I uh, I'll have to rewatch it because it's kind of hard to follow. And I I decided I'd smoke a bowl beforehand, so mm -hmm. it was hard to pay attention to the dialogue with all the trippy shit going on. <laughs> it's when you're when you're sober, you have a hard time paying attention to it. Like like <laughs> I was watching it and I just kept getting pulled in by the visuals, and then I wasn't listening to the conversation that they were having. Um, That's it's what happened to me. It's almost the anti-podcast. Like a podcast is basically you are listening to voices, 
and all you have to engage with is the things that they say. Um, so adding, like putting a bunch of visuals that conflict with what the ideas are that are being uh, expressed, it's there's so much uh, confusion that your brain goes through trying to understand what it should listen to, what it should be paying attention to, what to absorb, what to discard. Um, but I like the way that it's sort of like the podcast conversation and the narrative that they build sort of fights uh, and they bump into each other in weird ways. You know, that first episode, they the cartoon characters pick up a woman that's like pregnant and is like in labor and they're having their conversation. And it's like, uh, like Drew Pinsky is playing like the president and he's like, yeah, well, you know, that's the thing is I just don't think that there's really he's having like a totally normal conversation. He's like, I don't really think that there's bad drugs. I think that there's there's uh, people that abuse drugs. Um, and I think that there are there are good drugs for good situations. And um, hang on. Is she is she like going into labor back there? And then Duncan Trussell's like, yeah, man, she's like, and he's like, okay, well, do you need anything back there? And she's like, no, I'm fine. And he's like, okay, well, let us know, okay? Because we can pull over. And then they just continue having that conversation about drugs. And it's like, wow, this is this is just a weird, this is a bizarre show. Very strange. But an experience. It's a lot of fun. Feels like an old, like, those old, like, 70s, like, cartoons, like, adult cartoons that were, like, super trippy. Like, maybe, like, <laughs> something like the Yellow Submarine or, um, you know. There's a couple of different ones. I think Heavy Metal had a had a cartoon movie uh, from their magazine that also kind of lived on that trippy imagery and stuff. But uh, check it out if you want to. Um, John, uh, any updates about? I wanted to know any updates about your dieting. Anything? Any more? Any good? Um, no. Any more weight? It's about the same. About the same. All right. Yeah. Cool. About the same. It's only been, you know, uh, like a whole weekend. Yeah. yeah. I haven't weighed myself today. Yeah. All right. I wanna, uh, I wanna everything's see. going pretty well. Good. Excellent. All right. I feel like I'm pretty good. Are you pretty good? You want to? Oh, I'm ready to dive in. Let's jump into the topic. All right. So we're going to take a quick commercial break. And then we're going to come back here, and I'm going to ask John that question. My favorite question. What the fuck are we <laughs> talking about? comes the question what the fuck are we talking about 
Well, today you see, uh, we uh, we are uh, we're talking about uh, once upon a time in Hollywood. Ooh, the eighth and as I mentioned, final installment in the Quarantino. That's it. We may do a uh, bonus episode at some point because I do have one in the back pocket, um, but he doesn't consider it one of his films so to speak. Um, so I'm not going to either. Um, so we, we, if you're, if you're following along and you know, Tarantino, you know that we missed uh, death proof, but death proof was part of a double feature. Um, so it's more of like a co-directed by Quentin Tarantino. Um, the other half of the film is directed by Robert Rodriguez. And there's at least one trailer for a movie that is not, uh, has not been released, but that I actually would really like to see, which is Rob Zombie directing a movie of, I think it was Werewolves versus Nazis. Um, and it, the trailer for that fake film looked wonderful. And I definitely, if he ever wants to do that, I would, I would be standing in line ready to go. Uh, COVID-19 be damned. Um, John, what do you think? I know that this was one that you've sort of tried to watch before. How did you feel about yeah. it this time? Well, I finished it this time. Okay. To start. Yes. Um, having watched his movies up until now, it definitely made it easier to watch this one. Mm-hmm. And I did kind of enjoy it. It wasn't, it wasn't, I didn't find it as boring as I did before. Uh, I did like this movie. Good. It's cool. not my favorite. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I kind of knew, I, I knew what was coming. You know, you told me that uh, towards the end, there was a big, a big scene there, which I was kind of looking forward to because it wasn't much action before it. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, as long, long as this movie was, I felt they did a pretty good job kind of leading up to that. You know, there were uh, some things I didn't really care for in the movie that they could have just left out and cut down some of the time but that's neither here nor there yeah um yeah i'm glad that uh that it kind of grew on you a little bit and then this time it it, uh seemed to connect a little bit more um and i guess it sort of proves the 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 theory that we kind of were working with was that it might be harder for somebody that's never seen any of tarantino's movies to connect with it um but once you kind of know his style, um, it's like you trust him more. So you're willing to go further down the road with a movie that is, you know, it's not it's not like it doesn't have a plot, but it, it doesn't have a very clear. All right. If you know anything about Hollywood history, you know that. They're, they're not throwing, they're not setting the movie in 1969 and having Rick Dalton live next to Sharon Tate uh, for no reason. Like, you know that, you know the history of Hollywood, you know that something terrible is going to happen to Sharon Tate. Um, so I think that that's the real, that's the real dramatic thing is like, holy shit, how is this going to all unravel and how is... How is Rick Dalton involved? How is Cliff Booth involved? And, 
you know, what, what, what are we going to get? And I think the dread that looms over it uh, is pretty intense if you know that information. Um, so for you, here's another question. Do you know that story? No, I remember you briefly went over it before, but I'm not very familiar with it. So Sharon Tate was like 26 years old. She was an actress that was just beginning to come into her own. Um, she had been, she had won an award like two years earlier about like a, you know, the best, uh, or, or a young performer showing promise it was like, it was a weird award that she had won, but it was, it was something that it was like, yeah, people think that you're going to be something. Um, she was, uh, I forget if she was engaged or married to Roman Polanski. Um, and she was pregnant which they kind of cover in the movie um, with his child. And basically the Manson family um, were sent by Charles Manson to do some very, very bad things. And they wound up at uh, Sharon Tate's home and they killed Sharon. They killed Jay Sebring, who's also in the movie, they killed everybody that was in the house. Um, and uh, it's really horrific uh, what they did and the details of what they did um, might be a topic for us to cover on a true crime episode. If we ever go back to that. Uh, but it is a uh, it's one of those crimes that really shook Hollywood and changed Hollywood. Um, so the fact that he's setting us up with all of this iconography that points towards that crime being a part of the movie, uh, there's a lot of dread that that instills. Um, and I know that when I was watching it, you know, I, I, one of the, I had noticed there was like a tone that Tarantino had developed in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where like, there were funny parts, but overall, I felt the movie seemed kind of sad. Um, so I was getting a little bit nervous about where they were going to ultimately lead us in terms of that story. And then I was uh, pleasantly surprised to realize that like the story being called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it literally is like a like a Tarantino fairy tale rewriting of history, right? Um, and that's something that he's done more and more as his career's gone on. It's like, you know, Django Unchained um, sidestepped slavery and the realities of slavery to tell a big Hollywood revenge movie so that Yes, we understand that slavery was a thing. We we are shown the brutality of it, but also we get some kind of justice for the wrong that was dealt to all of those people. Um, and then you know you look at Inglorious Bastards, and Quentin Tarantino is like, 
everything that Hitler ordered to have done, he gets to like take a cyanide pill and and die at his own hands and that in and of itself is an injustice so let's make a movie where like fuck history let's tell it right this time uh they burn down his movie premiere they shoot him ten thousand times you know what i mean Uh like he is all about using his fiction to right wrongs um so i guess i should have probably seen it coming what he was planning but I was still genuinely surprised when we got to the ending and we had a completely different series of events uh, with the Manson family. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. <laughs> see, I did, but I didn't. No. And I don't know if you want to kind of get into that final scene now or save it towards the end of the podcast or... Um, let's, let's pull back on it. Let's pull back on it. Because I feel like we, depending on why you didn't enjoy it, I'm excited to talk about things. So cool. Let's let's hold up. Let's hold off. Um. So yeah, I think that the movie itself just has this like really. Um, it just it, to me it it felt sad, all the way through. But it also felt like Tarantino at the top of his craft, like. I think in terms of putting together a movie, this one is probably the nicest in terms of like the feeling of it and the camera angles and the way that like the camera lingers in places or the camera will show you something in a spot where none of our characters are and then our characters will arrive at it. You know what I mean? Uh, Different things like that. It feels like somebody that's totally in control of how they how they do what they do. The feet were more prominent in this one, too. <laughs> so, I almost was going to play it. I almost was going to play it, but I don't think I'm going to. Um, but this was the first movie that Brad Pitt won an Academy Award for, which is wild. Um, just because he's been around for so long. I can't believe... And he's given really good performances for... I would say the totality of his career. I don't feel like he's ever been bad. Um, <sighs> now this is the first time he won an Academy Award, and when he got up on stage, he was like, he was like, I um, he said, he was on stage, and he's like, I I want to thank my co-stars. Um, I think uh, you know, you know, if it's Leonardo DiCaprio or Margot Robbie or Al Pacino or Margot Robbie's feet or uh, Margaret Qualley or Margaret Qualley's feet or women's feet in general. (laughs) And everybody was laughing and he was like, seriously, though, Quentin Tarantino, he's separated more women from their shoes than the TSA. (laughs) That's so fucking funny. I love it. That's yeah. fucking awesome. You see Tarantino in the audience and he looked a little bit uh, uh, embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I uh, I think that Tarantino, this, this one in particular, it just feels like it's so polished. It's so well put together. And it, it, it you know, I don't know how much money they spent on the movie. But I feel like you look at it and it's like you see every fucking penny. Like it is a gorgeous movie. 
Um, everything is so well considered and so well conceived. Um, it's it's like a master class in 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 directing. Um, then the, the the question is whether or not the script stands up to that. You know, it's sort of the the idea that they use the seventy millimeter uh, film for the Hateful Eight, which is going to be shot in one room more or less. So it's like, does the craft match what the script's calling for? You know. Um, so I think like my my interpretation of it is I I like. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, quite a bit. Um, but I also can understand... I can understand people that have complaints with it, too. Um, I think one of the reasons I like it is I'm, I'm, I am a big movie person. So... This being a story from a movie person about movie people... Um, kind of it's like hitting spots for me and then also like i know that history of the madsen family murders so it hits another it hits another side of my personality that i like i'm interested in true crime stuff um uh -huh. and then i also just like the fanciful way that it's like you know what, what's beautiful about movies and fiction is that we don't have to settle for what is reality we can change it when something is wrong and i think this movie to me it feels like a love letter not just from quentin tarantino to old hollywood but from quentin tarantino to sharon tate you know like uh, i can't take away what happened to you but i can symbolically uh stop it you know i can symbolically spare you that fate and in my universe that never happened to you you know and uh I think that, that that's, like, a beautiful thing to do. Um, uh -huh. And very, to me, it's very sweet. And I, I wouldn't necessarily categorize Tarantino as somebody that's sweet. But I think that, I think that I kind of look at Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, like, um, you know, they talk about, like, men growing older and, like, your hormones shift, right? And then you, you kind of become more like a softer version of of the man you were and when you become a softer version of the man you are were i think there's like a negative connotation but i think that it brings out a lot of really beautiful things that uh maybe weren't a part of who you were before um and i think tarantino's at that point where now it's like he's still feisty um still scrappy still swearing up a storm, you know, still violent, you know, but there's also a lot more room for, you know, self-exploration um, and for seeing kindness in the world. Uh, and that's something that really felt different to me from the other movies that he had made. There's so many quiet moments that are there um, simply for their sweetness and that seeing Tarantino embrace that part of him as a storyteller. Uh, I really, I felt like it was, it was lovely, you know, truly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you put it that way, it, 
does seem like a pretty a pretty sweet a sweet story given the circumstances yeah i mean it's like the thing is is it's like like tarantino is he's somebody that's like fully understanding of his own intricacies um he has a fascination with violence you know um but also it's like with filmic violence i don't think he has a taste for it too much in reality except maybe when he like throws a paparazzi's camera or something of that sort which has happened um <laughs> that that is based on a true story um kind of like this movie uh but i think that uh i think that this whole approach for me uh it marks a turning point for him as a filmmaker i don't know how many more he has in him i know that he kind of has said that he wants to do 10 and then call it a career and that's going to be that um but if he does have more than 10 if we are looking towards seeing you know another half of tarantino's career i'm kind of fascinated to see where he goes yeah me too i'll definitely watch him whether we decide to cover him or not mm. i mean i've just watched eight of his movies so mm. it always seems right to finish it out if he does another one yeah i mean he he's uh i don't know it, it just for me this was a this was definitely like a culmination of things it felt like a little bit like everything yeah and it seemed like there was a uh like a nod to some of his older films with the way um rick dalton and his the movies he was in yeah you know you see him in kind of like a uh he was in a nazi movie he was mm -hmm. a bounty hunter yeah you know yeah um i don't know if there was other ones but there's a lot of things kind of threw his own spin on some things yeah, yeah. there's i know <laughs> yeah what else was there well, I mean, there's a lot of things that just, like, so those those are the two that really stand out as being, like, oh, yeah, Tarantino has, like, been in that field before. But there's uh -huh. also just things where it's, like, he's calling out, uh, I think, the Sergio Carbucci director, the Italian film director. Um, he's listed as the, in the movie, he's listed as the second greatest Italian filmmaker. Um after they don't say who he's second to but it's probably probably sergio leone who was like the king of the spaghetti western um but just in doing that like sergio corbucci i think directed a movie called django and if you go back and you look at like the title for his movie django it's blatantly the same font you know the same style as django unchained um so it's just a lot of things where it's like, I think Tarantino, you know how like before he would make references to movies via dialogue? Uh -huh. Now it's like he gets to make references to the things that inspired him as a young child growing up in that time, but not by just throwing them out in a bit of dialogue, but by actually like showing them, you know, like going and seeing behind the scenes of the Green Hornet and Bruce Lee talking about how he could beat Muhammad Ali in a fight and that whole sequence. It's like, yeah, like it's kind of like a funny sequence and it's 
sort of fanciful because it's taking place in the mind of Brad Pitt's character. So it's like a it's a little bit removed from reality. Might not be exactly the way that things went down. Um, but just doing that, I mean, I, I can picture a young Tarantino watching the Green Hornet and watching Bruce Lee doing like martial arts and all of this like ass kicking and fighting and stuff and being like, whoa, yeah, violence, you know. So it's like it's these things where it's like he's really getting to explore like the ingredients that made him who he is, you know, and uh, I thought that, that was a that that was a nice thing to witness, you know. Uh-huh. He is a, a child of the of those times, and it shows. You know his memories of them sort of, you know, come out on screen. Uh huh. So when I went to go see the uh, Jane Silent Bob reboot, you know, Kevin Smith talked a lot about his life and you know having his daughter Harley. You know, she's obviously a big character in that in that film. But he told the story about how she, when she auditioned for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yes. And when when she, when she told him <laughs> that she was going to do it, he was just like, "Oh my God, I, you know, I don't know, you know, that's a Tarantino film. Everyone, everybody wants to be in a Tarantino film, and like, kind of like openly admitted that he doesn't have the utmost confidence that she'll get a part or whatever. He's like, I just don't want you to like get heartbroken or yeah. whatever, right? So apparently, she was so persistent in getting the part that he, I guess he actually wrote in another character so that she could have a part in the movie. Wow. That's yes. Cool. I don't know the exact road. I, if I remember correctly, she auditioned and then I think she wrote a letter to him afterwards as well, expressing how much she wanted to be in the movie. And then, you know, obviously there's a lot that would have happened in between that. Hmm. But if I remember correctly, it's a story that Kevin Smith told. So he actually wrote her apart to get her in there. Hmm. Um, so like I was kind of watching her character closer than others to see, you know, what I had to offer. And, you know, she didn't, I don't think she even had any lines. No, no, not really. Um, but that, it's still pretty cool. Yeah, still, that's awesome. And it's nice that Tarantino like saw the effort that she was putting in was like, okay, yes. Um, yeah. I mean, and also you got to look at her, her career and stuff, you know, and, and it's like, she's been in basically her dad's movies. So it's like, it's not like there's anything wrong with that, but it's just to go from the movies that your family makes to Quentin Tarantino is a big leap, you know? Um, so I can understand, uh, there not being a, a lot of space for her. Um, that being said, I was super excited to see her. I remember watching the movie in theaters and being like, holy shit, that's Harley Quinn Smith. Like, that's uh -huh. fucking wonderful. I was very, very happy for that. Um, also, uh, that girl, Margaret Qualley plays like the lead, uh, Manson girl, um, the one that Brad Pitt winds up picking up hitchhiking and stuff. And uh -huh. I have to say that I, Margaret Qualley, uh, I, it's a toss up whether or not I saw her first in the leftovers 
on HBO or in The Nice Guys with Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe. Um, but I like her a lot. Um, I think she has like good comedic timing and she's funny and she's interesting. And I felt like this was one of the first movies that I saw her and it was like she was definitely playing a character. In, in the other things I've seen, it felt more like she was playing a variation of herself. They were giving her things to say that more or less lined up with who she is as a person. Um, this one was the first time that I felt like she was really portraying a different person. Um, and I thought that she was like kind of spooky. <laughs> oh, 100%. <laughs> There was I some... thought she was going to do something pretty drastic. Um, yeah. I mean, when she brought him back there, did she bring him back with the intention of bringing him into the community? That was the feeling that I got. Was That's what I thought as well, because she kind of brought him back, and she's like, oh, I want you to meet this guy, like, a, you know, uh, Tex, I think he'll really like you. And mm -hmm. it just seems, if you're trying to get someone to join your cult, I, I feel like there has to be more of a screening than just like, hey, pick me up on the side of the road, drive me here, and then, boom, you know, we get you locked in. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that that also is, like, culturally different, too. Because you got to think you're you're looking at California historically laid back, plus 70s, well, well actually, it was still the 60s at this point. So the 60s is free love and, you know, everybody's all buddy-buddy anyways. And then you're going to take this guy to a community that's comprised mostly of women and just imagine how that might play out. You know, he's a good-looking guy in a community of women. It'll probably be... He'll probably make out fine. Um, I think for her... It's just another case of like, well, we have Charlie, who's a figurehead, but he's about four feet tall. And then we have Tex, who's like our head of security, more or less. But like having more muscle isn't a bad idea. So you find a dude that looks like Cliff Booth that you're having a decent enough conversation with and like you're kind of vetting him and you're like poking and prodding and, and stuff. And then it's like, OK, well, maybe. Maybe this could be, like, an asset for us, you know? Because the Manson family, they had a pretty interesting run of luck with, with meeting people. Uh, they were involved with one of the guys from the Beach Boys for a while until his manager was like, you got to get these fucking lunatics out of here. Um, <laughs> yeah, like, they actually, like, had become really close with, like, famous people. And Charlie was trying to get that dude to help him get an album released and stuff. So, like, they they did have, like, a, a way of kind of, like, pulling people into their orbit, you know? Um, and I feel like they kind of tried to do that with Cliff. It's not revealed initially, but Cliff is suspicious from the get-go because he knows the guy that runs uh, Spawn Ranch. So he's like, well, what happened to that guy? You know, so uh -huh. he's there to investigate them, not to join them. You know, that's the main uh -huh. reason that he's... I mean, he would he would have probably given her a ride anyways, but when she says where she's going, 
then it becomes more of a personal thing where it's like, I want to go see what's going on over there, you know? Right. I like the idea of him kind of checking up on an old colleague, you know, somebody that he hasn't worked with in a long time, but he's still, you know, willing to go out of his way to make sure that that person's okay, you know? Um, Seems like an honorable guy. You know, it's interesting. It's a good segue for this conversation because, you know, that's the, that's the, that's my opinion too, is that I feel like Cliff Booth is an honorable guy. And then there's that thing where Randy, who's played by Kurt Russell, um, is talking to uh, Rick Dalton, Leonardo DiCaprio about, uh, why he doesn't want Cliff Booth to be a stunt double on the show that they're filming. And, you know, the argument's getting kind of heated. And then Randy's like, well, you know, he killed his wife, you know? And they take you back. They they go from that accusation to a flashback where you see what happened. And it's like, his wife is on the boat. She's yelling at him and... and you know, aggravating him and belittling him. And he's like sitting there and he's not really responding to her except for the fact that like he has like a harpoon gun and there's like a shot where the harpoon gun is lined up pretty much exactly with her body. And he's sitting there drinking a beer and then they just cut away from it. And they never really say whether or not he did it on purpose or if there was some type of accident and it just looked like he did it. But it is this weird, uh, kind of creepy undernote that's hard to figure out about Cliff Booth. Yeah, that's that's the thing. Like, you don't really know. <laughs> you don't really know. Um, that scene was odd. I mean, they definitely made it look like he could have, but they kind of left it up for interpretation. And the only thing that makes me think, like, maybe... Maybe he's not, you know, just the way he was, he was looking at the girls before he interacted with them, but, um, wait, uh, expand on that. What are you saying? So, you know, it's before he, he finally picked up and what do they call her? Um, uh, pussycat. Yeah. Before he picked her up, I mean, kind of had eyes for her and like, obviously she doesn't, she she, the way she looks is like questionable, you know, you know, legal or not type thing. Like age, yeah, yeah. And he he seemed pretty intrigued, but then like when it came to it, then he was, you know, he was yeah. like, "Well, how old are you?" She's... And he's like, "I need proof." And he's like, "You're not, yeah, I'm not going to jail over that." So well, I was like, "Ah, you know," because like at first when I was watching, it, I'm like, "Those girls definitely look underage," and he's definitely got to be, you know, forties. So. Yeah, but Brad Pitt forty. Brad Pitt forty isn't you and me forty. That's a different thing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean it's interesting because that morality is sort of like, like what is the what is the why why doesn't he engage, right? Is it because uh, it's because is it because what he is is honorable or is it because what he is is too old to go to jail for poontang, 
as he yes. as he puts it. It's like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, is it like, is it because it's not morally right to to take advantage of a young girl, or is it because he doesn't want to go to prison? And then you're like, well, yeah, and he like he's not gone to prison before, like when he killed his wife. So like. I don't know. It's it's a weird. I don't know. He's he's just like a gray area, and it's hard to figure out how you're supposed to be feeling about him based on all the information that they give you. Right, and that's why I when I think about him, I say it seems like he's an honorable man. It's hard to know. It's so difficult, and I I totally. But then, like, you see what he's. I mean. Again, that's that final scene is just it's there's just so much going on, it's so hard to like be like, well <laughs> this guy's a savage. <laughs> you think it's time to talk about that? Are you are you uh, good with everything else? I'm like chomping at the bit to talk about it, but I, I do wanna kinda of like let's let's Okay, yeah, yeah, right, go we'll for contain it. Contain ourselves. I was just trying to get to the point in the movie with the harpoon gun. I have it up on my television. Because I want to, the way that it's shot, right, is Randy, so so it starts out, Brad Pitt is fixing uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's antenna. While he's up on the roof, he starts imagining back, like it's a memory, of the time, like the reason that he can't work, the time that he got in the fight with Bruce Lee. And before that, so so he's... He's imagining back to it, and he's with Cliff, and Randy shows up, and, and Randy and Cliff have a separate conversation that he's not there for, right? And that's when Randy's like, well, he killed his wife. And then we do a flashback in this memory of the events where leading up to what would have been his wife's death, right? And then we pop back into his memory of that situation. But again, he wouldn't have been in the trailer with Randy and Rick. So he doesn't know exactly what was said, but he, he might be assuming that this guy thinks I killed my wife, which means that when he's when we're seeing that flashback, it could be him imagining what he thinks Randy thinks he did, right? Uh-huh. So there's like layers of complexity there where I can't figure it out. I don't know, and I don't think there is really an answer. Um, But I think I choose... Alright, I think I choose to believe that he didn't kill his wife because I'd rather him be heroic. Uh, I feel like if he did kill his wife narratively... uh, it says really fucking weird shit. Like, like you'd have to forgive him for that violence in order to hold him up as heroic at the end of it. Or if you're just like, no, violence is bad, then, like, Cliff is just a bad, bad person, but he also is responsible for saving Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring and all those, all those people from dying at the hands of the Manson family. So, it like there's too much. Um, it for me, I'd rather have the less challenging version where it's like 
there was some type of accident and everybody thinks that he did it, you know, that he killed his wife. Um, Mm -hmm. I'd rather, I'd rather live with that than the other. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the guy doesn't, he doesn't even seem phased when people accuse him or call him wife killer. He's just like, "Mm." like he's heard it all before. (laughs) Yeah. He's definitely like a stoic sort of character. He doesn't have much, um, doesn't seem like he gets angry about anything. No, and when he was challenged initially, you know, by the Bruce Lee character, he initially was like, listen, man, I don't want any trouble. I just had to do a job and that's it. Mm -hmm. To me, he comes off as someone who's seen some shit and possibly done some shit. And it's just like, I'm too old for this now. Yeah. So... Um, I think too, like that, that trait to me always like feels like confidence, like in in a very extreme way. Like, like I can, I can decline a fight with Bruce Lee and I know people are probably thinking that I'm afraid to fight Bruce Lee, but that's not the situation. It's that I know that I'll win. So there's no contest. It's not, (laughs) I'm not interested in performing that fight so that everybody else can know I'll win. It's just I I know it inherently, and that's good enough. And I think that that type of stuff is really uh, that's the that's the man you should strive to be, right there. Uh huh. You know. Right. Somebody that's another thing doesn't have to act out violence to know that they can accomplish it. You know. <laughs> yeah, he's got nothing to prove. Yeah, that's a you good know, that's a good like... way to be. I agree. So. Um. Yeah, man, I, I am with you on that, though. I'm also choosing to believe that he didn't do it, you know, after looking at all the evidence and seeing it still be up in the air. Yeah, it makes it more... Um, I don't think that you could... Like, he would be completely unpalatable if he actually had murdered his wife. Like, it would be, like, something that's hard to forgive. And yes. that, I think, detracts from the overall point of the story. Um, on the flip side of it, like, so Brad Pitt being Cliff Booth is, you know, he's Leonardo DiCaprio's like chosen stunt double and they're really good friends. Um, and they're really kind of like the opposite people in a lot of ways. So if Cliff Booth is calm, cool, collected and confident, uh, Rick Dalton is filled with neuroses um, and fear and real anguish. Uh, and I think DiCaprio does an amazing job uh, kind of portraying somebody that's sort of fraying at the edges. Um, he's on the downturn of his career, you know? That's another thing I wanted to mention because... You know, it, uh, like halfway through this movie, it dawned on me. I'm like, this is Leonardo DiCaprio playing someone who is past his prime, you know, and he's struggling and he's worried about his career. And I'm like, this is fucking Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. Like, it's just he, he, he played this part so well of someone who's just down in the dumps and it like made me really believe that I'm like, man, this guy does, maybe he does, this guy does kind of suck, mm. you know? Yeah. Like, but no, he did a really good job with that. He, he, um, you know, it's funny. Like, I feel like right before this, like this character 
probably hit close to home for Leonardo DiCaprio right before he won the Academy Award for The Revenant, where it was uh-huh. like, I'm getting up there in age, and I have not won that big, prestigious award. And, like, is it ever going to happen, you know? And then questioning your value and all of that stuff, knowing that the clock's ticking down. It must be kind of, uh, it must be a little bit stressful. Uh, and I, I don't know that that's how he would feel about that character and himself. But I think that you're right. And I, I think that you're right in kind of drawing that comparison that there might be something to his experiences and the experiences of Rick Dalton, you know? Uh-huh. I, um, I gotta say, one of my favorite things that they did in this movie is the little girl that is his co-star on the Western show that he's filming. Um, I think she's awesome. The eight-year-old? Yeah. I, Dude, I, she fucking killed it. That character, her performance is great, and that character is awesome. Um, uh-huh. And I feel like... I feel like, again, talking about Tarantino not... Like, Tarantino's never been sweet. Um, and I feel like the the inclusion of like a child character in a Tarantino movie uh so what was it Kill Bill you got to see her daughter but like that was not that wasn't really a part that was like a symbol like a symbol of what a daughter would be like um this girl had like actual um actual lines and she had actual, like, real scenes and things to do with Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, and she did it so well. And I just thought that that entire segment of the movie was uh, really... Um, you know, that was, a, that was to me, that was one of the big, like, marking points of, like, when I felt the most... Uh, the most like this was a different Quentin Tarantino than I had seen before, you know? Mm-hmm. She she brought a lot of uh, gusto to the movie too. She was just she reminded me a lot of. Uh, you didn't watch Game of Thrones, did you? No, not really. I tried. Uh, one um, day I'll try again. There's this character. Um, fuck. I'm going to Google. I know her last name, but I forget her first name. It's been a while. Uh, Liana Mormont is played by, she's basically a child, and she's just like this badass, fierce little kid, Mm -hmm. and this is what this girl reminded me of, like, just so much confidence. Yes. And she just has, like, this determination in the way she, in, in her mannerisms, the way she talks. Yes. And, like, I, I will stop at nothing to get what I want type Mm -hmm. thing. Yeah, I, I I feel like she. There are certain kids that that portray like a a, a wiseness beyond their years uh, on film, and uh, this one's no different. I looked her up. She's Julia Butters is her name, and I hope that she sticks with acting because 
I feel like she did such a good job on, in just the little bit that she had in this movie. Um, it'd be cool to see. You know, it's always fascinating when you like look back at an actor that's already established. But I think it's equally fascinating to look at an actor that's not established and be like, they're going to be something later. Like that, that yes. this is like the first time we're seeing them, but later on, they're going to be like the lead in a movie. Later on, it's going to be their show, you know? Um, uh-huh. And I kind of, I'm, I'm picking her name out of the hat and saying that she's one of them. I, I did the same thing with Joey King when she was younger. And Joey King was in... Uh, a couple of things is like a real small child it was like yeah i she has like a a quality about her that i think will you know that she she will be successful um but i don't feel like i've ever i don't know if it's because it's tarantino dialogue that always helps your performance seem that much better but like this girl i i definitely think is like a rare talent um uh-huh. So, before we go too much into anything later down the line in terms of the plot, I do want to stop and talk really quickly because I feel like we we, we stand the chance of not bringing her up just because she doesn't have that much to do. Um, But Margot Robbie playing Sharon Tate, she is... There was controversy surrounding Margot Robbie's performance as Sharon Tate. Um, And it had to do with the fact that here's a movie with all these men, and then you're telling a story that's about the murder of Sharon Tate. And Sharon Tate feels like a footnote in the story, right? Um, right. I how do you how how do you feel about that? Because I have definite opinions about why that is the way that it is. Why she wasn't really present much in this movie, and why she seems like like doesn't like it feels like Cliff Booth has a character, and that Leonardo DiCaprio has a character. Then it feels like Sharon Tate is a little bit quiet or bland by comparison. I guess is the way that I would put it. I don't know how else to say it, but it, she just she seems flat by comparison to Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio. Right. See, like I, you know, I wasn't really too familiar with the story and how big of a part she would have played. So, like, to me, it wasn't anything weird, you know, I didn't know what she, you know, because like you said, you know, it it seems like she's just kind of a footnote Mm -hmm. in this movie, you know, so I didn't, didn't know how important her part was, Mm -hmm. but you know, obviously, if there were Margot Robbie in a movie, it's got to be a part that's going to be somewhat like a lead, somewhat important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, you know, I really don't have too much on that. Yeah. I I mean, I I, I kind of struggle with the. Here's the thing, is it's easier for characters to have character if you're not basing them off of somebody that was real, in my opinion, because then uh-huh. you can pack them full of different 
different problems that are custom that the plot of the story winds up being custom made for their problems so that they there's drama in their stories that's compelling right um uh-huh. with sharon i think that there's a couple of things at play is it's like yeah it's it's sharon tate but like do you really feel like it's the character of sharon tate or is it sharon tate as an idea you know uh-huh. i i kind of lean that it's sharon tate as an idea um she's portrayed by margot robbie in almost like angelic terms she's a member of the high society of hollywood but she's going around and picking up hitchhikers to help them give them rides um she just seems so wholesome and pure and i can't help but connect her to tarantino's idea of what hollywood was before the manson family murders Uh so to me it's like it's like i'm i'm i connect her to to that era where we were making movies and television shows and we were entertaining people and we were you know we were having fun and it was free love and the 60s and there were drugs and it was just a good time uh i can't help but connect that environment to her wholesomeness and i think tarantino's like wish fulfillment in terms of the script is the idea of you know we we save her life and we save old hollywood you know and if we save old hollywood then we save the pureness and fun and simplicity of what making movies was so to me i don't feel like she's i don't feel like she was ever written into the script to be a character if that makes sense and maybe that's problematic in its own right but i i feel like the approach i feel like the approach is appropriate especially for where the story leads if the story led to the true events of that night and you barely gave margot robbie anything to do except the thing that happens to her on that night then i would be like yeah that's really fucked up but that's not where the story's heading so it makes a lot more sense to stay with cliff and rick because you know like it makes a lot more sense to stay with those two when you know that the ending of the film they are the they are the major players you know exactly exactly um we're gonna cut off because we only have a few more minutes on this recording and i know we still want to talk about the ending this is a good segue so uh we'll be right there so yeah seeing that we're we we just came butt up against the events of that night um let's let's get into it um i know i said that i really liked it um and you said that you were a little bit less enthusiastic about it? Yeah, I mean, it, 
it was so 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 the, the scene itself it was it was interesting and it was you know it kind of got it was teetering that line of what we've talked about before with Tarantino and his scenes that tend to go over the top in movies that don't that it doesn't seem to fit in but when you add in the fact that he was on acid mm-hmm. I think it fits I think without that the the him being on acid um you know, I think it'd be like, ah, that was kind of over the top for what happened. I mean, you know, the guy's a savage. Yeah. You know that he's capable of things. Um. So you, it's like, maybe he would do that. I mean, he kind of, it, it's what you call overkill, you know? For sure. <laughs> and I would have liked to have seen things more from his perspective being on um, a psychedelic drug. Mm-hmm. So that's like the only like, qualm I have with it, but yeah, you know, overall, um, it was a pretty wild scene that just kept getting crazier and, and the grand finale was <laughs> <laughs> pretty wild. So I know you liked it. What'd you think? So here's my thing is that I went to see this in the theaters. Um, and I got to tell you, man, uh, there is like a special thing that this movie did, and it was the the intermingled sounds of gasping and laughter. Um, even more interesting was when I realized I was the only one laughing. No, I'm just kidding. No, there was there was more than just me <laughs> that thought it was funny. And then there was a lot of people that were like, I can't believe they're showing this kind of violence towards women. Which I understand. Um, but I also am like, uh, did did you guys not... Like, did you guys forget what these women did to Sharon Tate? Like, the, the violence that they inflicted on somebody in real life? This is a symbolic retribution film, you know? Like, this is a, a, a revenge film where none of the characters are seeking revenge, the director is. You know, the director is seeking revenge on these people through proxy. You know, like, he can't actually go and inflict violence on the people that were involved in that crime. Uh, And I don't even know how many of them are still alive at this point. Hopefully none. But Uh this is him symbolically taking out his rage against... A group of people that inflicted horrendous pain and misery on an innocent woman that, by all accounts, was one of the sweetest and most genuine people that anybody in Hollywood had ever fucking met. And they not only inflicted this violence on her, but they did it to her friends and her family, and they did it to her unborn child. So, yeah... You know, when it comes to that scene, Tarantino has handcrafted a a monster man in Cliff Booth. And now he's unleashing that monster man on these fucking people that he believes, I think, as I do, they forfeited their lives when they decided to take someone else's. So, you know... that death didn't catch up to them that night in reality doesn't mean that it should not have. And 
it doesn't mean that you get to play like a gender card about about those people. They yeah. they did something fucking horrific and now they're getting it done back to them. And that to me is a joyous triumph of filmmaking. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, that, that makes sense. You know, there's like, there's a lot more that goes into these things as someone, you know, you, this is more your realm than mine. You have more hands-on experience with, with uh, creating stories. Mm-hmm. So I always just love to hear your take on things because you just see it through a different lens than I do. So hearing it in that, in that way, it, it, it makes a little bit more sense of why it was just so brutal. It was like, you know, when it, when you compile everything together and you see this as a movie that Tarantino was taking as an opportunity to kind of get symbolic revenge or a symbolic tribute to what happened. And, you know, it's, you know, it all really comes together. Yeah, I think that that's one of the things that really, for me, stands out about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is I think that I would never... There's a love story in Django, right? But I wouldn't say that Django Unchained is a movie that's filled with love or anything. It just has love as as one small part of the story. And man, when I watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that is a movie that I think every single frame of that film and every every word that was typed and performed and and every stitch of clothing and every little bit of background detail that they did to to bring that era back to life the whole fucking thing is filled with love like this is something that this guy quentin tarantino poured over every little detail of this movie and you can tell how much he cared about about getting it right and getting it exactly the way that he wanted it to be. And, um, you know, I, I, I remember that the fallout and, and oh, there was a lot of those questions online about, you know, the violence at the end of the movie and, you know, especially the one girl that, that Brad Pitt has her hair and is just bashing her off of every surface in the house. <laughs> Like, he's, like, going down the list, making sure he hits everything. Um, I remember people, like, really taking issue with that, or certain people really taking issue with that, and I just had no sympathy for for her, you know? Uh, knowing, knowing the reality of the situation, knowing that, knowing what she did when Cliff Booth wasn't there, uh, I, I don't care. You know what I mean? If you ask me, uh-huh. he didn't hit her head off of enough things. Uh, <laughs> so that's my <laughs> yeah, opinion. Yeah. Um, but then also, I mean, the, the so that's the one. The, so there's text there that gets it pretty good from the dog. And then also Cliff Booth winds up like stomping on his head on the front door. Uh-huh. And then the third girl is the one that it's like almost a comedy, like... Like, I think that that was what was eliciting the most laughter. I think the the red-headed girl got the most gasps, but the dark-haired girl got the most laughter. 
because it was just nonstop. Like every, she was just having the worst day of her life. It was like <laughs> I tried, I tried to run and stab him. I got hit in the face with a can of dog food, a full can of dog food. Then the dog was attacking me and like dragging me through the house. And then I finally got away from that, and I stood up and ran straight through a plate glass window, uh, fell into a pool, right? Which, you know, there might be chemicals. Maybe it stung a little. But then when Leonardo DiCaprio, like, Leonardo, <laughs> like the whole sequence is just, I, I'm imagining Rick Dalton, who's like, you know, he's, he's relaxing at the pool. He's a little bit drunk. You know, he might be a little bit on drugs. And, like, he, he's just, it's totally peaceful. He's listening to music. And then all of a sudden, the smash of the glass, her coming, screaming, running and falling into the pool, and the look on DiCaprio's face of just utter fear and uncertainty about what's going on. And then when he realizes that there's, like, some type of, like, to him, it just looks like there's a monster woman in his pool. And he does the only logical thing, which is, like, okay, get out of the pool, go to the shed, get the flamethrower from my Nazi movie and torch that fucking shit up. Like, just get rid of the monster woman. You know what I mean? I'm perceiving this as a threat. I'm perceiving that I am in imminent danger and I am doing whatever is necessary to ameliorate that situation. Like, that entire... That that whole moment is played so fucking funny for me. I, I die every yeah. time I see it. Dude, like, just... I can only imagine what would would have been going through his head at that time. He's just flexing. He's listening to music, and then boom, she comes flying through the, the sliding door. Jumps, falls in the pool, starts firing shots off. And he's in a panic. He doesn't know what to do. And then like it just clicks. Like oh, I have a fucking flamethrower in my shed. Be right back. And then he grabs it and so calmly just walks out. He just the 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 entire like, like the level of fear that is, like, obvious and, like, just his, like, quiet almost, like, breathless and completely befuddled like, what the fuck? <laughs> that whole thing. What the fuck? <laughs> it's just so funny to me. Every time I watch this movie, uh, that whole ending, you know, that whole, like, climax to the movie, I just think it's hysterical. Gets me uh -huh. every time. Tarantino's great, like, with... You know, I mean, he knows what he's doing and he knows when things are really shockingly violent. Um, but he also, like, has this great way of, like... Uh, so, like, you know how laughter is, like, a nervous response, right? So, like, nervousness and laughter are kind of linked. He... Uh -huh. He's able to, like... He's able to get your nervous... Uh, he, he All right, he knows that he's making you nervous. Because she's, he's showing you violent things, right? So he knows you're already there. And all it takes is like a goofy detail. And that one goofy detail all of a sudden turns into laughter. And, and it's hard. It, it turns into like a big laughter. Because you're letting off that, that tension, you know? Um, so to me, this end scene is like another version of like... The, the lawyer and that other guy in Django that during that big shootout where it's like, oh my God, is Django going to be okay? And like, what's going to happen? Like, those are the thoughts that are really playing in your head at first. 
but then you just start to notice like the one <laughs> the one or two guys that like every single shot that's fired seems to be going through them and they're not dying they're just living with it like <laughs> every single time <laughs> and it's like that detail all of a sudden it changes your your thing where you could be experiencing real drama i think tarantino like normally shies away from that and it's like okay yes i know that i'm telling something that could be perceived as very dramatic so I'm, i want to cut that tension i want to let people enjoy this and, and in doing those things and like i just said uh, that there's like one close-up shot of one of the dudes in that Django gunfight where he's just like ah! like right in the camera and it is just, it's so goofy. It is so weird and over the top. And it's just, it, it, he knows how to combine those elements so that you're never, you never take the movies that he makes too seriously. You know, you always kind of get to experience them sort of at an arm's length, you know. And I think that that's kind of a key to his, his success is he doesn't, he can show you he can show you horrible things happening that should make you terribly uncomfortable um, and often do make you terribly uncomfortable. But uh -huh. he... or Well, no, I mean, I shouldn't say that. I mean, he shows you things that should make you uncomfortable, but they, they don't often actually do because I think it's all through that lens of he's picking out the moments of absurdity that make it more palatable, you know? Uh-huh. Right, right. Hmm. Well, I, you got anything else? I was just going to say, I feel like... I feel pretty good. You feel good? Yeah. I feel I'd like say so. we, we covered this one in a pretty in-depth way. And, uh... I mean, we, ne we, we always miss something. It's always something that I'm like, ah, oh, shit, I should have said that on the show. But um, overall, I mean, I, I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is is a pretty good one. Um, it's not the very tippity-top tier, but I, I enjoy it quite a bit. And I think just sensing his enthusiasm for what he's working on is um is delightful in and of itself. Uh -huh. Now, let me ask you this, okay? So, uh -huh. I know the first time you watched it, you were like, nope. And then this time, you liked it more, right? Uh-huh. Uh, what do you think uh, for the future of you in this movie? Do you imagine going back to it ever? I'm totally not opposed to it. I mean, it is a long one, you know. Um, and since we have all this time during the quarantine, not a big deal. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like later on, we're back into the normal swing of things. Um, it wouldn't be my first choice. Mm -hmm. But um, it's not something, you know, there's movies that I watch and I'm like, I will never see that ever again. But this isn't one of them. Cool. I'm open to it. All right. Sweet. I'm glad that uh, that our Quarantino it did it did a couple things. We got to do a pretty fun little series. It was a little bit different than uh, it was a little bit more focused in on one particular 
topic over multiple episodes, which was kind of cool. Um, uh-huh. And also, it redeemed once once upon a time in Hollywood in your eyes a little bit, and that that makes me happy. So, yes, it did for sure. Oh, I'm glad that we did this because um, I would have just not watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and I wouldn't have had the kind of appreciation that I do now. You know, I would I wouldn't have had the type of appreciation that I would anyway, even if we didn't watch all these movies. And I did give it a second chance. I feel yeah. like I appreciate it more because of the path we took to get here. Yeah, yeah, it definitely. And I think that that speaks to that thing. You know, it, it, this movie to me feels very much like a culmination of everything that Tarantino's learned over his long career, every trick, uh, and and every every little skill set that he's developed over all this time i feel like it really is on display in this movie and not only that it's not just the stuff that you know from tarantino but it's new stuff that i haven't seen him do uh just you know even just the fact that the the like we talked about the child star you know the the having like a having a child character written by quentin tarantino is uh just very novel there's a different different thing that we've than we've seen before um and i think that to me this one definitely feels like um <clears throat> i feel like when i watched django i really felt like it was like wow this is like tarantino on on full blast like this is you know this is exactly what a Tarantino movie is. And this one doesn't feel like exactly what a Tarantino is. It feels like what a Tarantino movie is. It feels like a, like a rebirth of sorts. And that's why when he says he only wants to do 10 movies, I'm like, please keep making movies. Like don't stop at 10 because I feel like he's going to continually be tinkering and reinventing what it is he does. Um, Uh Uh-huh. So, I don't know. I'm excited for whatever he has coming next. Yeah, he's definitely not afraid to push the envelope, and I do appreciate that. Yeah. Um, You know, speaking just real quick, but next for Tarantino, I've heard, like, some weird things that I wouldn't have imagined. Um, And and one of them was that he wrote a a Star Trek script that he gave to J.J. Abrams, and then... J.J. Abrams was like, well, will you direct it? And he was like, yes. And he was like, uh, I will, but it needs to be R-rated, and I don't want to be interfered with, and I don't want my script changed. And Paramount was like, yep, no problem. So for a little while, Quentin Tarantino was going to direct an R-rated Star Trek movie, which just, like, completely blows my mind. I, I have a... It, 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 it seems like it's fallen through at this point, but... I, it, if it ever comes to pass, it's going to be one of those, like, very, very unique, um, little snippets of, of film history, you know? It's just a bizarre, uh, bizarre matchup, in my opinion. Yeah, that'll be interesting. I never really got into Star Trek, and I know nothing about it, but... I don't know. Could be much. something worth watching. Yeah, just to see. Um, my my Star Trek exposure is mostly through J.J. Abrams. Um, I didn't watch a lot of the old shows. Um, 
I just think the idea of somebody like Tarantino, who's so known for his crime stories and his, like, over-the-top violence and stuff, taking on what is widely considered, like, a uber-cerebral um, science fiction story with really minimal action. Uh, it's compelling to me. I'm very curious about what that could be. Um, so, I don't know. Fingers crossed that maybe something will come of that someday, but who knows? Um, anyways, I'll probably wrap this up. Um, and we'll say to you guys, thank you for listening. Thank you for all the support on the Django episode. Um, because that's been one of the ones that's been, it seems like it had a higher listenership than some of the ones we've done lately. So, um, actually, no, uh, sorry, the Hateful Eight. I apologize. Oh. Yeah, the Hateful Eight had more listeners than uh, we've been getting lately. So thank you guys for doing that. And uh, as always, we love you very much. Please take care of yourselves. Be safe. And John and I, I think, might be going back to our regular schedule, right? I mean, we'll probably just go back to once a week after the quarantine is finished. Or do you want to keep going with the doubles? Um... I think especially that next topic, I think the once a week, mm -hmm. if we're going to be diving into other ones, that, that extra time to mm -hmm. kind of get the bearings, I think would be beneficial. True. Yeah. Because we and, are, we, uh, we've, we've done a lot of movies and we're kind of looking to stretch our legs, especially while Hollywood is on pause. So. Uh -huh. yeah. um, I got a notification during the podcast. Two, that Massachusetts, our stay-at-home order, has been extended to May 18th. Yeah, it'll be done by then, for sure. What will be done by then? Uh, COVID. Oh. <laughs> it'll be all over. Yeah, I mean, I think they're... <laughs> I don't know. I mean, they can always just extend it again, I guess. But um, it is officially extended, so it looks like we got another, what, three weeks? <laughs> another three weeks at least we're gonna get through this though we are we're gonna get through this with flying colors you watch <sighs> all right guys we love you swear to god it'll get better all right bye it will bye everyone take care This episode was once again brought to you by ron-iii-art.redbubble.com. Head over there, check out the WT Fada collection. We got a bunch of different merchandise from the show. And, uh, you know, if you see something you like, pick it up. Helps us out a ton, and uh, we definitely appreciate it. And, uh, hey, send us some, uh, some shots of it. Some shots of your merch, okay? All right. Bye, guys. Thank you.